Thank you for listening today. Dr. Lori Hess is a leading exotic animal veterinarian with a busy veterinary practice in Bedford Hills, New York. If you need more information on any Zupreme product or have questions for Dr. Lori, go to our website at www.zupreme.com where you can contact us. Make sure to follow us on Facebook for more information on upcoming podcasts, education, and Facebook fun. Welcome to the Zoo Nation podcast channel brought to you by Zupreme. Zupreme makes healthy food for pet birds, rabbits, guinea pigs, and ferrets. If you're listening today, your home has probably experienced the love and happiness of owning a non-traditional or exotic pet. We know it's a zoo in your home sometimes. Here's Dr. Lori now to help you learn more about the care of that special pet in your home. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Hess, Director of Pet Health and Nutrition at Zupreme, and you're listening to podcast number 12. Today we're going to talk about a day in my life as an avian and exotic animal veterinarian. Now, most people don't even know what being an avian and exotic animal veterinarian means, or no less what exotic animals are. Um, When I mention what I do for a living, most people just stop and pause and think, hmm, what is an exotic animal? So an exotic animal, I tell people, um, is really any type of pet that's domesticated, kept as a pet, other than the traditional dog and cat pet. So things uh, that are considered exotic animals are certainly birds, uh, bunnies, ferrets, um, all kinds of rodents like guinea pigs and chinchillas, um, rats, mice, hamsters, gerbils, um, dagoos, which are also in the rodent family, um, you know, reptiles like turtles and tortoises, uh, snakes. Yes, I do see snakes. Um, uh, what else? Uh, all kinds of lizards. So bearded dragon lizards, geckos, um, iguanas. There are all different kinds of lizards. Um, I see some amphibians, so uh, toads and uh, frogs. Um, occasionally see some fish. I see some uh, sort of odd pets too, a little less commonly known pets like hedgehogs. They're the little prickly looking guys, kind of look like porcupines, but they're not in the porcupine family. Um, I see uh, kinkajous, which are sort of in the raccoon family. Um, they grow kind of big and, and like raccoons with long nails. They're very, very cute when they're little. They look like little bears almost. Um, I see potbelly pigs, which, you know, look like uh, miniature versions of larger pigs that you see on farms. Um, some of them get to be as big as those pigs on farms. Um, what else do I see? Uh, I see occasionally a wallaby, you know, in the kangaroo family. Um, another marsupial pet that has a pouch I, I see is a sugar glider. They look like little flying squirrels. They're actually not squirrels, but they're actually marsupials. They have a little pouch, and they have a fold of skin that stretches from um, their sides to their wrists, so they can uh, glide around like a kite, and they jump from tree to tree, and and they are found in Australia. Um, So 
I, I get to treat all these different species, and the fun part of my job um, is that I never know what's coming in the door on any given day. Um, I probably see more birds and rabbits than any other pets, but any day we see all kinds of species coming in. Um, and I have an animal hospital that I opened um, a little over nine years ago now uh, that treats exotic animals and birds exclusively. So we don't treat dogs or cats. Um, I used to be a dog and cat veterinarian, so I finished veterinary school about 25 years ago, and I did a year of internship right after I finished uh, vet school, and I got to see dogs and cats and, and birds and all these crazy animals when I was doing that year in, in a very large animal hospital in New York City. And what I realized then is that although I had had great education in vet school on dogs and cats and some other traditional animals, things like uh, cows and horses and sheep and pigs and goats, all of which you need to learn about if you're going to get a license as a veterinarian, um, I had had very, very little training on these other non-traditional pets, the, the birds and the reptiles and all the other animals I mentioned. Yet I was expected to know how to care for these pets if they came into the animal hospital. So I realized it really wasn't going to happen that way unless I, I learned more. So I decided that um, I would do an additional two years of residency in exotic animal medicine. Where, so I stayed on at this big animal hospital in New York City um, where I just studied exotic animal medicine and surgery. Uh, for an additional two years and learned all about the care of all these unique species. And it was really fun because it made me a different kind of veterinarian and made my days completely different from those of my colleagues who were just seeing dogs and cats. Now, don't get me wrong, dogs and cats are terrific and they're fun and I have my own pet dogs and cats, um, but it can get a little boring if you're doing dogs and cats only every day because you're doing a lot of vaccines and a lot of spays and neuters and heartworm tests and all that's very important, um, one of the fun things about my job is that no day is the same. So I spent years and years after that residency period working out of cat and dog hospitals all around New York and Connecticut, right where I'm from. Um, and I was seeing all these patients uh, within the dogs and cats hospitals. Um, and, and it was fine for a while, but what I realized is that exotic animals have their own special needs. So birds and bunnies and ferrets and all these other animals have very special needs. They, they require special equipment. Um, they're smaller than a lot of these species, these other dogs and cats and, you know, that, were, that are seen in these hospitals. And they don't always mix. So you know, birds can get really freaked out if they're sitting in a waiting room with a barking dog. You know, the predator-prey relationship. Um, dogs and cats are predators. And and many of the species that I treat, the exotic pets are prey, and they get really stressed being in the same place. So I decided um, uh, nine plus years ago at this point to open my own hospital that treated exotic animals only. Um, it's called the Veterinary Center for Birds and Exotics, and it's in Westchester County, New York, about 40 some odd miles north of New York City. And um, six days a week with three veterinarians and 10 people on staff, we treat exotic pets and birds. Um, many people are surprised to hear that there are actually that many birds and exotic animals in any given area that actually need care that many days and that many hours a week. But um, we are very, very busy and we are actually on emergency call as well. Um, at night. So from the minute the hospital closes at night uh, to the next morning, one of my vets or, or me uh, or I uh, is on call for any exotic
exotic pet who has an emergency situation overnight. And we are very, very busy. Um, one of the tricks about being an exotic animal veterinarian is that um, there really are no local 24-hour hospitals like there are for cat and dog veterinarians to send their patients at night. So if one of my patients gets sick um, or another exotic animal patient from another hospital gets sick, there's really no place that you can just say, oh, go to the emergency clinic and they'll help you there. No, I mean, it doesn't work that way. Unfortunately, you know, most of those places that have emergency staff overnight are not equipped to deal with exotic pets. So um, I have a system now that I have a, an answering service that screens emergency calls at night. And if people really feel that they have an emergency, um, I get a text message uh, from the, the answering service letting me know, you know, what kind of animal and what's the problem. And then I call that owner back and we discuss it and determine whether the animal really has to be seen at that time. And there are certain emergencies that cannot wait till the next day. You know, animals who are bleeding, seizuring, um, can't breathe. Those are things that can't wait. So I have uh, set up a relationship with a couple of emergency facilities that treat pets overnight in my area, 24 hours. And I'll go in there and train them in basic life supportive care. So how to give oxygen to a bird who can't breathe or how to stop bleeding in a bunny who's bleeding, for example, or an animal that's in pain, how to give pain relief or uh, provide fluid and nutritional support to animals who are not eating. So those are really life-saving things, life-saving measures. Um, that I can offer to people overnight uh, until the, the pet can be transferred to my hospital for diagnostic testing the next day to figure out what's going on. So uh, it is challenging to be an exotic animal veterinarian. It's fun. Um, no day, as I said, is ever the same. I have to be on my toes at all times. Um, I have to keep track of so many different species. You know, the medical care of a snake, for example, is completely different from the medical care of a guinea pig, is completely different from the medical care of a cockatoo parrot. Um, their anatomies are different. The types of diseases they get are different. Um, the types of care they need are different. And one of the biggest challenges I face is that I have to keep up to date with all of the care and all the changing medical care and uh, the changing procedures that we learn how to do on these animals, the new types of surgery, uh, the new drugs that were used in these animals. So. It, it is really challenging, and uh, my homework is never done. I'm constantly reading. I'm constantly having to go to conferences, veterinary conferences, and communicate with my colleagues so that I can keep up to date so I know I'm providing the best, the gold standard of care for all these different species. Um, I, it was interesting years ago uh, when I was working out of dog and cat hospitals and, and I really did want to open my own hospital. I was really dissuaded by my colleagues and my family members from doing that. I mean, unfortunately, you know, nine, ten years ago, the economy wasn't great in the U.S. And um, I was dissuaded by the fact, you know, that I see hamsters and canaries and some little patients who, unfortunately, some people consider disposable pets that, you know, they don't really want to spend a lot of money on these little animals that they can can replace. Um, you know, that's not true for everybody. Some people have small pets at home that they adore and they'll do anything for, but not everybody feels that way. So a lot of people thought that my animal hospital would not be successful because I was treating, you know, these patients that uh, maybe people didn't care that much about. But one of the things I've learned is that so many of these patients, these animals, mean so much to their families. A lot of families start out before they get a dog or a cat with a hamster or a bunny or a parakeet um, or a lizard. And often these, these 
pets are starter pets for families and they get really, really close to them. Um, and these birds in particular are some of the reptiles that live a really long time. These animals are with families for generations and they get passed down from generation to generation. So the bonds are very, very close. Um, and people don't realize that a lot of these animals really do need medical care, um, certainly when they're sick, but they need preventative medical care too. So they need checkups every year. I mean, and, and some of these animals, when they get older, like some of these older birds who are 40, 50, 60 years of age, they're like people at that age, and they really need to go to the doctor at least once a year. Um, we can prevent many problems from happening with checkups in many of these animals. For, for example, birds who are on high-fat diets, who eat a lot of um, seeds and nuts for years and years, they get cholesterol deposits in their arteries, atherosclerosis, just like people do. Um, they're prone to stroke and heart attack, and this is something that if we measure their cholesterol levels, just the same way you know you and I go to the doctor and have our cholesterol checked, we have our triglycerides checked, um, if we find high cholesterol, high triglycerides, we can change that animal's diet um, and increase their exercise. We do measure things like HDL, the good cholesterol, and LDL, the bad cholesterol, and we make recommendations to try to prevent illness in these animals, and these birds in particular. So most people don't realize that we have the ability to do tremendous things in my animal hospital. Um, we actually have a lot of the equipment that's found in a human hospital. So we will do things like digital x-rays, which are pretty incredible. We're seeing amazing images of the insides of all of these pets. Um, we have ultrasound in my practice. So ultrasound is, you know, sound waves to image the inside of the body like you would do with a pregnant woman seeing a baby inside. It's completely safe, non-invasive way to get uh, a better picture of what's going on inside these animals so we can help them if they're sick. Um, we will do CAT scans. You know, we actually have that ability now. And uh, for example, rabbits have a lot of dental problems and we do CAT scans of their head to try to see what's going on with their teeth. Um, so we can remove an infected teeth and treat infected teeth. Very, very commonly done in my practice. Um, we have laser in my practice, which is used therapeutically. So lasers are used in medicine now in people very commonly and in animals to decrease inflammation, to decrease pain, to decrease swelling. And again, this is a non-invasive way to really help an animal who may be very, very painful. I know I've had laser used um, on my own body. I've had many wrist injuries and, and uh, foot injuries as a result of years and years of doing gymnastics competitively. And laser has been a wonderful treatment for me and really helping me. And I, I really do appreciate how much it, it really can be a great way to decrease pain and swelling in an animal who's suffering. So it's something we use very commonly in my practice. Um, we also have endoscopy in my practice, which are these little metal rods that have fiber optics in them so that we can uh, insert them into the organs inside birds, for example, or reptiles, and see inside non-invasively, fairly non-invasively, to understand what's going on inside an animal. For example, birds who have reproductive problems or that have eggs stuck inside, reptiles the same way. We'll use that to um, look inside them and, and plan surgery or determine whether surgery is necessary to take biopsies of abnormal growths and uh, masses or whatever we can find inside an animal to try to figure out what's going on. So we do all kinds of uh, medical care, surgical care. We have blood testing machines in my animal hospital so that we can actually take a blood sample from an animal hospital and within about 10 minutes right there on the spot have uh, analysis of their blood to see their organ function 
infection and whether they're anemic or, you know, if what they have infection, high white blood cell count. Um, it's very, very helpful to help us diagnose problems in animals who are very, very sick. And many of the patients that I treat, you know, they hide their illness till they're really sick. So by the time they're in the animal hospital uh, seeing me and, and I'm getting a chance to try to diagnose what's going on, they are really sick and dying and they've hidden their illness and having that blood testing machine right there so that I can get an answer within minutes can sometimes be the difference between life and death for these animals. Um, we also have a lead testing machine, which is really important if you're going to treat birds. Um, birds love to chip away at paint and uh, we see quite a bit of lead poisoning. Lead poisoning is usually easily treated in animals if you determine that they have it and it's a very specific test. Most places don't have the ability to test for lead right there in the animal hospital. They actually have to send, vets have to send out samples um, often to universities across the country. And by the time you get that, that test back, often the animal is sick or unfortunately sometimes has passed away. So it's great to be able to do that right there and then in the animal hospital to find out if there's lead from chewing on an inappropriate uh, surface, like a painted surface or a metal surface. So those are the kinds of things that I'm capable of doing in my animal hospital. Um, and most people, again, don't realize, A, that exotic pets need preventative medical care, or B, that even when they're sick, we can provide this level of advanced medical care to birds and other exotic pets. Um, so, you know, that's what being an exotic animal veterinarian is like. Um, I can tell you my day is never the same. Um, we start early in the morning. We start at 9 a.m. And from 9 to 10 a.m., we do rounds in my animal hospital just as uh, a human doctor would uh, or our cat and dog vet might do with their patients. We, I have two other vets in my practice and we meet and we discuss the patients that are in the hospital. Um, if there aren't patients in the hospital, we'll go over the schedule for the day and talk about what animals are coming in and come up with a plan. Sometimes we have to plan a surgery, which we'll do during the course of the day, and we'll talk about how we might do that. Um, and then at 10 a.m., from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., every 30 minutes, we are treating another animal. It's very busy. There are three vets, and typically um, we are all seeing appointments at once. Um, it can get a little chaotic because, um, again, we're, we're treating all different species all at the same time. So some animals I can treat by myself, like I can hold the bunny rabbit and uh, examine it myself, but I can't necessarily hold the macaw by myself and take blood from it, for example. So I do need some help, and we do have three licensed veterinary technicians or veterinary nurses in my practice who are very, very specially trained to understand how to hold and um, safely restrain and help test test um, these specific species that we work with. You know, most veterinary technicians don't have that experience, and most vet students uh, in veterinary schools who eventually go on to graduate and become licensed veterinarians, they don't have that experience. So it, it is tricky to find people with this kind of experience to work in this kind of environment, and it has been a really big challenge for me to find the right staff. I mean, I'm very, very happy to say that we have wonderful people working with uh, me now in my hospital. Um, but it's been really, really challenging to find people who have that level of interest in exotic pets and that level of experience. So we'll see, we'll see patients again from 10 to 1. 
from 1 to 3 in the afternoon. That's our break, which is really not a break. It's a time to kind of scarf down lunch and start on whatever procedures we have that day. So it might be taking x-rays from, uh, you know, any number of animals. Um, we might have a surgery to do. Sometimes it's a spay or a neuter of a rabbit. We do that quite a bit. We spay rabbits quite a bit because we know that over 70% of them can get uterine cancer after age three, which is completely preventable if we spay them at an early age. Um, that's something that unfortunately can be fatal. And, and again, something that should be done um, when you bring in your bunny for a checkup. If you have a female bunny, you certainly want to talk to your vet about spaying her. Um, sometimes we'll do neuters on rabbits because they will be spraying uh, urine. There can be behavioral issues going on. Um, so we will do any number of surgeries. Uh, we will do, for example, birds will lay eggs. They'll get stuck inside or reptiles sometimes have eggs stuck inside. We'll have to do surgery on them to remove the eggs. Um, many, many of my patients get uh, wounds. They'll have growths develop that we'll have to remove. Just as a person might have a biopsy of some little growth, we do the same thing in exotic animals. Um, we have a lot of trauma. Um, birds fly, they crash into things. We have wings break and legs break. So we're pinning legs, we're splinting legs, we're bandaging wings. You know, we do all kinds of sort of trauma and orthopedic repair in my hospital. Um, we do barium x-rays. So, you know, this white talky stuff that you swallow and you have to sit and have a bunch of x-rays taken. We will do that too. Um, to follow barium through the gastrointestinal tract if there's a problem there. Like if an animal eats something inappropriately, we can see that they have a gastrointestinal tract obstruction. Um, we will also do CAT scans. Um, on our pets and those are you know pretty high level things we're doing we do we do all these different kinds of medicine in my practice and we can really do the kind of medicine that's done in human hospitals certainly the kind of medicine that's practiced in uh, dog and cat hospitals and provide incredible care to all the these different species in a way that we were never able to do before so it's really pretty pretty amazing what I get to do during the course of a day um, the fun part about my job, again, is that I not only get to work with these incredible animals, but I get to work with some pretty incredible people, too. The people who own these animals are just phenomenal. And the bonds that they make with these animals, as I mentioned, some of whom are in the family from generation to generation to generation. Um, I not only get to meet these amazing pets, but see the incredible relationships they have formed with their owners. So it's a lot of fun. And a lot of people will say that vets, you know, go into veterinary medicine because they don't want to deal with people. And that's just not the case. We deal with people all the time. Um, I think I'm definitely a people person. And, and the interaction with the caregivers of these animals is, is, is exciting and as important to me as working with the animals themselves. So, you know, when I think back over my career, I have so many stories of different pets that um, have meant so much to me and have meant so much to their, their families. But, uh, you know, sometimes people ask me, oh, you know, what's, what's an animal you really remember who really touched you? And I think one animal that I recall th that I, I just was so blown away by the whole experience was there was an Amazon parrot in my practice. She was in her 40s. Her name was Baby. And Baby came into me 
Um, she had been in uh, this, these people's family for years and years. She wasn't on the best diet. She had been eating a lot of seeds. You know, a lot of these older parrots have been in families where years and years ago when they were first adopted into the family, we didn't know that seeds and nuts and the high fat that is in seeds and nuts really wasn't the best diet for them. Um, as we do know now that um, pellets are really the appropriate diet. Um, but we, we see many birds come in on high-fat diets, and they have a lot of nutritional deficiencies. So this, this bird baby came in. Not only did she have such horrible nutritional deficiencies, but her bones were just breaking down. They were really, really uh, just there was no calcium left in them. She hadn't had any ultraviolet light, and we know UV light is very important for the formation of vitamin D in uh, birds and reptiles and people's uh, skin. And vitamin D enables us to absorb calcium from our diet. And if you're 